0: Or was it um, was it four years ago we started talking to each other?
1: Oh, four four or five years ago, I would have to say. Yeah. yeah.
0: And uh, that's when you were first doing the Australian Cryptozoology Conference. So, or was it shortly after that?
1: Uh, it was about the time. Yeah. So I started the conference in about 2016. uh uh-huh. Um. Yeah. So I was around that time. It was when it really started to get bigger as well. Yeah, and I think yeah. By the by, two thousand eighteen, we're getting messages, emails uh, from speakers around the world wanting to come and speak, um, and also in Australia as well. So the the reputation grew as well for the conferences because beyond. Mm. Well, I you know I, I, I just
0: remember happening out upon it. I I don't know how we got in touch, but I saw that Gary Oppitt was there, and I. I followed gary for a while and rex gilroy and you know, all those guys and um and i would had this like this long term interest in the yaoi and mm-hmm. all the different creatures there in australia and we started talking and i just i just thought wow you know this is a place it's a place to visit and as a british person yeah. of course we've got that that strange connection you know yes yeah, exactly. uh, we, share, we share a monarch and um yeah. Yeah, you know, there's this this sort of line of sight, even more so than Americans in a way. I think there's a, just a bit more understanding, sort of like a more direct line of understanding, culturally speaking.
1: It's really interesting because I have spoken to Americans before that think I'm British,
0: uh-huh. and
1: there's a lot of people that think um, they just know I'm Australian as well. So I think that the way we speak as well can be similar. You know, I speak to people from Melbourne and Adelaide, who have a rather British accent as well, but they're yeah. from, they're not from England. So it's really interesting, interesting, you know, dialect similarities as well. Yeah. Uh, some Africa sound like New Zealand or, you know, um, stuff like that as well. But it, yeah, just, I think culturally we're different and the same, we're different and the same at the same time. Yeah. So it's really how close UK and Australia are, even, even when it comes down to our comedy, which is a big thing to do with culture, I reckon British comedy is completely different to Australian comedy. Um, both can be extremely crude, but yeah, uh, that's just that, that similarity as well. Cause uh, UK is also known for the comedy, uh-huh. you know, I also know for our comedy. So, um, but just very different as well. And even watching, I've watched many British TV shows over the years. So it's culture wise, uh i can see a lot of similarities but also differences as well
0: yeah it's interesting you know it's um i, I always because uh, we always moan about the weather here and everything you know everybody moans about the weather if it's hot it's too hot you know we don't have aircon if it's cold it's too cold nothing works and um you know when people wonder about people what british people would be liking better weather i always say well we know what they would be like they'd be australians they are essentially us with good weather and great food this yeah. is what we're looking at you know we already tried that experiment and it's working out fine for them and yeah. um, and the other joke of course is they sent the prisoners there but we had to stay there's some sort of you know something's not right here uh <laughs> yeah. yeah uh so anyway all, all the silly jokes aside Um, The one thing, and I know I'm coming next year to visit you guys to do the Uh the Australian Cryptozoology Conference, which I'm really excited about. But it got me thinking about all the different types of Aussie cryptids. And Mm -hmm. it's a massive, expansive land. You know, there's so much, such a small population for such a big place. That's not really, you know, that interior is empty, isn't it? I just wondered if we could go through like a few few of the cryptic creatures and just you know find out your ideas and those and um i love water monsters so i you know i thought maybe we could start with something like um the bunyip for instance what, what do you know about that
1: well the bunny actually a really interesting one because we're known for the bunyip here and outside of cryptozoology it's a big part of our folklore it's a big part of who we are as well you know um there's tales from where i come from newcastle which is two hours north of sydney um one of the first thing was the second city in australia and you know there's a place here called Hexham, and it was uh-huh. the Hex- monster or the Hexham bunyip which is one of the um if you look up bunyip stories online you'll be able to come across uh the Hexham bunyip and you know, because the Hexman Swamp, which growing up I would go past all the time. had no clue that there was towers of bunyips there. And there hasn't actually been any reported sightings of bunyips since about the 70s, So, which is very interesting. I've heard many different ideas, and I've spoken to Gary about it. He has his ideas about possibly seals or sea lions coming in. But the area where the, these bunyips have been sighted, eh, are in areas where they're cut off from the sea. You know, we're talking in the outback where there's a place called Walgett, which is north northwest New South Wales. So it's in the outback, uh, quite far from from the sea. Um, there's a place there, and I and I first heard about this from a lady who I'm close to, practically family of mine. She's Indigenous, and her family's Indigenous, and they come from the Walgett Lightning Ridge area. They're from the Gamilaroi tribe, i hope I pronounce that right. But um, basically, there's a place there called the Two Meeting Rivers. And in the Two Meeting Rivers, supposedly growing up, she'd hear stories of the water dog, which was also another name for the bunyip. And she couldn't go near there. So the bunyip is described kind of like a giant seal, Mm. but it varies as well. It's hard to gain an understanding. Like, if you look at generations... Uh, depicted by artists of what their vision of a bunyip is, always completely different. They look completely different. They seem to be like they've got flippers and stuff like that, like a seal body, right? But the face seems to be quite different. Mm. So it's interesting how close to a seal that they're, they're just, you know, described, but yet in areas where seals should not be mm. or where they can't get access to, so the bunyip is one of the most fascinating in my opinion just due to the amount of sightings for the many years before colonization and many years after colonization as well up until the 70s that makes it even more interesting because these are areas where there should not be any seals and yet these seal like um uh animals that have been described in the waterways or in the billabongs of the of, you know, the outback. So that was very interesting. Have, um, have there been, do you know if there have been any uh, um, barrages or dams
0: erected between sea inlets and those areas in that time since the 70s that could perhaps have stopped the seals coming in?
1: Um, I don't think so. I, 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 there are, if you look on a map, so yeah. We're talking Wolgut's miles and miles away, like it's in the in the thick uh, outback.
0: Oh, we're talking hundreds of miles in,
1: oh, yeah. So you you've probably seen New South Wales on the map, right? Well, Walgett is going towards the corner, or the northwest corner. So that's pretty far from the the coastline. You have to drive for miles to, like, you have to drive for ages just to get there. You know, uh, for me, I think it's going to take about ten. So I live on the coast. So I was going to take about. I think once I actually looked because I was looking at going to Walgett one time, mm. and, 10 and a half hours drive from here. Wow! So it okay. is quite. So, um, that in itself, just how far it is, is completely interesting. And yeah. from a Zulu perspective as well, you start to ponder like, how are the seal-like creatures that are being described in a place like Walgett so far? outback so far from the coast you know see, you see you know how big australia is and mm. how much desert and how much of its coastline that's pretty huge there's a pretty huge difference uh, distance from you know um where the coastline is
0: i remember a moment ago you mentioned that the head is the, the body is like a seal but like a seal but the head is different what, what's different about the head
1: well, a lot. Most descriptions have it as a, as a, like a dog, so um, it's really interesting because, as I said, you know, the illustrations differ. Some the illustration I looked at that the body was like a seal, but the head was like a rabbit. So mm-hmm. it was it. I guess different artists have different illustrations of the bunny. It's different. Tales of it. So to get, to get a visual of the bunyip is quite difficult. So the bunyip for me has always been one of the most intriguing because of the lack of information, although a lot of information, but then a lack of information as well. So that has become quite fascinating.
0: You know, I for a long time I wondered, because of that seal-like representation, if um, if there was a correlation between the Australian bunyip and the Doha coup of Ireland which is also sort of like a giant seal of a way, or more like a giant otter, actually, but it has those similar qualities, and, and I think they, they normally refer to it as a giant otter. But for me, this, this crossover, you know, it, it's, it's quite significant. There were two chaps, um, Gary Cunningham, I forget the other chap's name, and they, they've written some great books um, on sea monsters in, in the lakes of Ireland called the seal, and one of them is called the seal serpent theory, basically about, you know, ancient Irish seeing these perhaps errant sea lions coming across the Atlantic and swing about up into the small locks through the rivers in their their part of the world and being spied, you know, by, I suppose, locals who have no clue what they're looking at or at least don't expect to see a creature like that in that environment. And then these legends grew up out of it. Do you think, you know, from the, um, from the aboriginal side of things, there could be, you know, there could be some of those elements, um, especially for people of the interior, you know, seeing a seal in that environment, how would they have known what they were looking at? How would they have described it other than through available animals that they could picture, you know, and then from their mental library, a rabbit's head. These flippant, like uh, feet, seal-like body.
1: Yeah. yeah, that makes very, that makes a lot of sense. You know, um, I'm I'm not as familiar with the sort of Aboriginal de- depictions from like uh, because you know we've got Aboriginal art here. Mm. And, uh, I'm not as familiar with the depictions from that, or I haven't specifically talked to uh, Aboriginal um, tribal elders and stuff about uh you know this topic um but i'm actually very more interested to, under- to understand their depictions of the of the body as well you know and and this lady who i told you about uh she's she's um she's really to her this is her religion right this is this is her belief it's very spiritual in touch with the land uh which is what a lot of aboriginals are They're very respectful to the land and. And, and pay tributes to the spirits, um, you know, and to the elders past and present. And so it would be very interesting to see that because it's hard to gauge on other depiction of uh, Bunyip. Um, unlike other cryptids, we obviously know what a thylacine looks like and what a mm. yowie looks like and all that. But the Bunyip, what is a Bunyip? That's, mm. that's the question that pond is like when it comes to hexam as i told you before hexam i think hexam is actually connected to the sea but hexam channel goes pretty far out from the sea so if there are seals or sea lines going into there it's, it's pretty interesting um nonetheless you know no uh, it is i mean it, it really really is interesting and i i think
0: um you know these are the sort of the common monster imposters that we always look for doesn't necessarily mean that's what it is. It's just, I suppose, it's, you know, tick that off the list, right, Um, for those things. But there's other water monsters in Australia as well, and maybe you can tell me about the ones that, I don't know, obviously the famous one is the Hawkesbury River Monster, and I remember when we chatted before, you had some interesting ideas about what that could have been.
1: I reckon that that is a, um, uh, because, Based on the descriptions alone, and and the thing with the Hawkesbury River is is it goes no deep than about thirty eight meters. If you look at so the Hawkesbury River monster, I should clarify, uh, is described like a plesiosaur, the same as the Loch Ness monster uh-huh. and other other sea monsters around the world. I've been to Hawkesbury River man. I had to travel down there just to go to Sydney. You know, I've been to Sydney hundreds of times. I used to play um, sports down there and and all sorts, um, but you know with the comes of the hawks river monster it doesn't compare to other other sea monsters around the world because i've actually done some digging as well with uh there was a uh, lake in sweden that has a sea sea serpent type creature description and with them the, with that lake i think it goes hundreds of meters deep oh it's very lextosian yeah i think so yeah yeah, yeah very deep And the same with Loch Ness Monster is very deep as well. Horse River is not a deep river. I guarantee you if there is a place you saw there, it would have been discovered by now. It's not deep at all. It goes no deeper than 38 metres. And also, the interesting part is, there's a place there, I think it's called Devil's Cove. I could be wrong. And I don't know why it's called Devil's Cove, (laughs) interesting name. But there's a large number of leopard seal sightings and sea lion sightings in that specific cove and in fact is that's where the majority of sightings take place so to me that is enough to instigate possibly well, most likely case close to the to the hawksbury monster in my honest opinion nonetheless uh there hasn't been any documented sightings since the 80s actually which is pretty interesting um you know Rex Gilroy, who I'm a good friends with, and he actually wrote a book on the Hawkes River Monster, and and there have been other researchers who have went and done investigations. I myself have been down there, and and I've actually used a camera, uh, like an underwater camera, in that area, and I picked up um, nothing. The water's fairly murky there. Uh, okay. But when I used it, it was uh, when I used the camera, I've used it. Uh, it's the same area where the sightings have taken place, actually, off a jetty. And um, basically, the, it was, the water was so murky, you couldn't see anything in there. It was not very clear water. Okay. But, um, yeah, so it's for me, I believe that the horse River monster is possibly a mistaken identity. And a leopard seal, I mean, that's, um, we wouldn't see those in this part of the world, but that's a
0: huge animal. Yeah that's a really really huge animal and I think uh, and it looks fierce it's got big teeth the neck does look slightly elongated as well yeah. <laughs> and I think if you saw one of those you know popping up on your on your walk uh, and then obviously they're not they're not inhabitants there they must stray bite from time to time right um, if you saw one of those on your walk and suddenly this uh, you know this 12 foot creature it's a Lips out of the water, and you see that little, those little serpentine humps or that little spy hopping thing going on. You could more than believe that you were seeing something
1: monstrous, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and because you know, if you look at a leopard seal, they look a lot like a, a plesiosaur, they really mm. do. You know, it's, it can be easily mistaken identity when it comes to a leopard seal um and to other species there and particularly the people who don't often see those species which is something i also like to talk about mm-hmm. as well because identity is a very important thing to talk about in cryptozoology as well for people who aren't as familiar with certain species you know when i was younger i'd hear sounds uh, you know that would intrigue me and i wouldn't know what they were Yeah. And, oh that's a possum, oh that's cool. And and I don't know if you've ever heard what a possum sounds like, but they sound quite fierce. For small animals, they you know, they have quite a um monstrous sound.
0: Mm. So very interesting. And this this brings me to another thing really, and I, I think this is good. I'm seeing more and more of this in cryptozoology these days. Like people who want to find mysterious creatures Um, you know objectively looking at the evidence like the Hawkesbury River Monster, and saying oh actually it probably is something explainable when it is at least I think that's that's important that helps the genre because then people other outside persons will say oh look you know they're willing to debunk when it's time to debunk and they're willing to look further when it's time to look further they seem balanced maybe there's something in this instead of this um, kind of belief situation we've been in for a long time, you know, where people yeah. sort of believe in Bigfoot or believe in Nessie, and which sort of denotes faith to me in a, in a sense. It seems to be a strange, uh, a strange aspect of a genre that's seeking hidden animals to believe in them, you know, it's kind of a weird thing. And now I know there is there are crossovers in that because of course with some First Nations persons and even with old Celtic folklore and Aboriginal folklore, there's that crossover of the spiritual and the real and the, the the corporeal, where certain creatures in their legends occupy both, right? So it's difficult to extract what's absolutely real from what's um, religious or folkloric. Is that right? Um, yep. But, you know, from that aspect, I, I thought maybe we'd go into the different hairy humanoids in Australia, like the Yowie and the yeah, the larger ones like the Quinking and Doolagall and, and the Junjodies, the little fellows. Well, yeah. What do you know about those guys?
1: Well, obviously the Yowie is um, Australia's Bigfoot and occupies the Great Dividing Range. Uh, when it comes down to a lot of them, you know, the Quink simply another name as well. The Doolagall, they're. Um, other name is Potikin, which is from this area, the puttican uh, the Wobbukul tribe. So that's the area because I'm from Lake Macquarie as well. And I, there's a, actually was, uh, the Potikin story takes place at Mount, a place called Mount Sugarloaf. And literally I look at Mount Sugarloaf every morning when I get up because I'm so close. <laughs> as well. Wow. Uh, there hasn't been a sighting there since the sixties I've been able to find, but right next to us, Waddington's National Park, where I've conducted a lot of research and there has been plenty of sightings there. Um, you know, the John Judy is described as a little, uh, a smaller version of the Yaoi uh, in, in size, uh, the same as, um, you know, Indonesia has the Orang-Pendek the and the orang The orang is a rather large um, species by description, and the Orang-Pendek is described to be smaller. So it's kind of a similar situation there. Some people believe that the John Judy is simply a, uh, a juvenile yaoi that's smaller that people have mistaken for a separate species. So there are different beliefs as well whether we have more than one separate species of a of a Sasquatch or Bigfoot, or we don't have a separate, you know, uh, whether we do or we don't. Um, you know, through my research in Yowie, there's there's a lot there's a lot of credible sightings. I found a lot of credible sightings. I couldn't believe it. You, you do get the ones who, who simply there's a lot of people who have made up stories or well, kind of made up stories so I don't know for a fact, but they would say another thing, And their story changes, right? Yeah. That's why, uh, for me, when I go out there, I always took a notepad and pen and write write everything down so I couldn't because it's, it's perfectly normal that people can over time their story changes, you know, uh, especially if they were to encounter something like a Yowie where it just stuns them. Like just to see a a Yowie would would be uh, so beyond possibility for them. And then it's like, wow, I've seen something that's from folklore. This is amazing. And so documentation straight away is important. It is crucial if someone has a sighting to document it as soon as possible. Uh, not, not a lot of people go out there expecting to have a, to see one and have no pattern pen. Some moss sightings up from people who are going out looking anyway. But, you know, there are a lot of researchers who have, and particularly going back, I've read articles back in the 1800s in Australia, where naturalism, because of Australia being such a naturally curious world, and coming from England where there's been some fantastic naturalists such as Charles Darwin, Uh, Australia had all these naturalists back in the 1800s, and the ones that would have encounters with the yowie's would document sightings. But have notepad and pen every single time they went in that environment, they always took a notepad and a pen with them, and they documented in a journal what they had saw. And so that was really interesting when they have proper documentation of what they've actually encountered, which is where I, for me, I always make sure that that is the of the utmost importance when it comes to equipment. You can go out there and you can use all the fancy gadgets. A lot of them try to do like flea cameras and um you know normal things like uh you can use you know you can have um plaster casts and stuff like that. That's good. But the most important thing you can have is actually cheaper than all of that. It's it's an old pattern pen. Because Isn't Dr. that what the
0: police say? their most uh, valuable piece of equipment is a notepad and pen <laughs> they do
1: probably yeah. because it documents everything because yeah. even even for someone like me if i was to go out there without notepad and pen and actually see you know let's say i see a, a yowie and i haven't documented it then down the track i'm i'm overthinking the whole situation and then i've come up with new solutions to that situation yeah. and that's normal everyone can do that yeah we remember things differently over time that's a fact exactly and that's just how that's why it's important to always take a notepad and pen so we can document the facts while they're there in fact when i had i believed i had an encounter when i was uh 15 on, 16 yeah 16 at the time um so it would have been 2015 no, i was just before my 16th birthday um so I was only even younger but uh, I believed I had an encounter and what did I do I took a an notepad and pen and I've got the notepad and pen um also well, in not, not the pen but the notepad um and at my dad's house to be honest with you but um I still have it with me because I've documented uh that that day it was January 17 2015 about four quarter past five in the afternoon it was daylight savings so still the day the the sun was out for the next couple of hours probably less than and i looked through thick scrub i saw this rather large uh, interesting uh, creature looking back at me rather brownish to orangish hair and had its hand on the tree looking at me now this was through thick scrub went it was almost completely quiet other than the wind and i was with my father at the time and i was like did you see that he couldn't see anything he didn't have his glasses on him and anything and and then before i before i knew this creature had gone i saw this creature looking back at me and people often ask me was i intimidated was i scared i always say no because this creature had no had no intention to harm me and how do i know that because it didn't make a move towards me or anything It just left it was about 20 to 50 meters from me and through thick scrub at trees through a clearing i saw this creature obviously saw me knew i was there I knew that this creature was there because I happened to look at that place where they were standing. I didn't, no, I didn't hear sound or anything. All I'd heard was a tri- tree. It was actually a tree branch fell off the top, one of the top trees, um, and then that that lured me to that area. And so the Yowie or whatever this was, I shouldn't say it was a Yowie because I have no evidence, but basically. Made no sound to lure me to to my observation to actually have encountered, mm-hmm. but I found that was <clears throat> that was an incredibly interesting experience. And Absolutely. Yeah, you know, a lot of people. Most societies I've had to, given to me before by eyewitnesses, nearly all of them would end in fear some way. Mm-hmm. They'll say, oh, "I was afraid for my life," or you know, yeah. May the may have very well be because we're talking about. A potential animal that we haven't proven exist and and are out of the realm of normality until they encounter, and so for me to have an encounter where I able to tell people I was not in fear is a rare is a rarity in itself.
0: I think that's that's an amazing encounter. I, I wonder in that situation was it perhaps the distance. Uh, that you were from the creature and that the creature appeared hidden that stopped you feeling afraid? Or that, you know, even if I'm looking at you right now, if I'm looking at you from 50 feet away, from your body language, from your face, even if you're an animal, I can tell whether there's a threat or not, because we have that instinctive knowledge within us. Was it more that you could tell there was no threat, you were simply observed or noticed by the creature who noticed you notice it? And then when it, you know, you turn to your father, that was his chance to get away and it, it it left.
1: I think it was a bit of both because I, the distance because so obviously we threw a thick scrub, there was so many there's still so many trees and, and scrub in the in the way between me and this, mm. this uh creature I've observed before this creature could actually get to me. Yeah whether it wanted to harm me or not. However, um all I saw was a curious creature. And I believe, based on my own observation, that this was a curious creature just looking at me, knew I was there, probably, before we know, may have actually encountered other people before. Mm. This creature was gone about its time. And I also had done nothing to... Uh, to instigate harming it or mm. have you know uh, you, you
0: weren't presenting any sort of a threat either really I suppose and I I, I often wonder obviously not every time because things do go wrong with wild animals in pretty harmless encounters but I, I am guessing the creature perceived not only that you were young and with a parent mm-hmm. figure so that's a protection as well in the animal world I think but um, that you were accompanied by a, a parental figure that's I do believe that's something and that you were no threat perhaps and, and that was it. What What about the, the face? Now people must ask you this all the time I'm guessing this is always the next question, right? What yes. of the face did you see? What could you describe in that small sort of window of sight that you had? Because you saw the arm against the tree, you saw the the hair or
1: fur, Did you, could you see the face? You saw the eyes for sure well you know obviously being further away this is where it gets a little bit tricky in descriptions but well what i believe i saw was a rather broad human face you know similar to that of an orangutan Mm. but probably not the same i'd probably say closer to a human but it was still a broad face Oh, like a flat muzzle almost or yeah yeah pretty much you know and as far as other descriptions go, a rather bulky body, broad shoulders. Wow. Uh, um. In fact, I actually may I may still have somewhere I wrote down. I actually drew my encounter. Wow. So I, I actually, and I'm not a very good artist, but this was actually really good for for my work as well. Um. I'd actually observed. I've actually written down my observations as well. Drew, drew it down to match with what I had already written down, and in itself was a very fascinating encounter. Rather brownish, orangish hair, bulky, uh, muscular, rather uh, big legs. Um, I mean, obviously, this was a
0: that's a really good sighting. I mean, uh, you had a you had a sighting. It's clear. Really, I mean, yeah. uh, whether you want to call it a or not, to be you know technically um, objective, yeah, I understand that, but that that seems like a pretty strong sighting to me, Jack.
1: It, yeah, I mean, it, it is, and it's really hard to talk about it as well because. You always don't wanna come along and for me, for me personally, um, also go you know, obviously I do a lot of work with wildlife conservation and do a lot of science work outside of cryptozoology. For me it's hard to say I saw a Yowie because who's gonna take me seriously if I saw a Yowie and I can't be like, Here's the evidence I saw a Yowie because I have no evidence. And to me that that's where it becomes very subjective. People either believe me, people don't. Um, yeah. You know, people may think I just saw a tree or something. Yeah. But I believe in what I saw. Nonetheless, I have no evidence, which is where it gets very tricky. It's the unfortunate thing about looking for, you know, if you want to keep scientific to the topic, Mm -hmm. it's really hard to to do that if you have an encounter. Very hard to do that because it seems like anyone who ever – even scientifically speaking, anyone who has an encounter is automatically dismissed. Um, you know so it's really it's really a tricky field. So that's where as well um, I'm very careful with how I try to be careful with how I word things with the, with the topic of the hour, whether I had an encounter or not you know
0: yeah. No, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Yeah. yeah because no you don't get any sp-
0: in your field of work, especially in uh, in the regular life sciences you don't get a special medal for claiming to have seen a Yahweh. You get demoted almost, right, in people's uh, opinions, people's um, estimation of you. Um, My personal opinion, would that be uh, as as in regards presentation of your experiences? I had an experience that I can't explain. That's it, you know? And then when everybody thinks you're not trying to explain it or ascribe it, they're kind of willing to listen a bit oh that's odd that's really strange jack yeah okay oh really do you think it was yeah i don't know what it was but i do run the australian cryptozoology conference <laughs>
1: you know? Yeah. yeah and the, with the conference as well it, it, you know there are people who believe obviously there are p- different people in the field you have the more scientific people you have the different people and there's often people who say oh, i should be getting this research because they because they strongly agree with their ideas but that's not the point of the conference the point of the conference has always been not just scientifically based but to challenge your own ideas because if we're we're not talking about species we know for a fact we can't say that yawis exist in the australian bush we can't we can't we can't create a conservation area because of yawis because that's uh it as much as i believe in yaris that's still ridiculous because we haven't proven it we need to prove it yes. before we look at doing that you know um there have been people who have actually suggested to me that we should do that but actually we shouldn't because we haven't proven that yaris exists so when it comes down to the conference i want people's ideas to be challenged including the speakers because how are we able to Broaden our own horizons as researchers. When we go out there and then think about what we've now learned from another researcher and from their experiences and from, from you know, their research and their research methods, how are we supposed to grow and get better as researchers if we can't even do that? And, you know, I love cryptozoology because of from um, uh, from environmental perspectives as well, because it's teaching more people to be environmental and be environmentalists, because... Yeah, uh, there's so many, there's so many people I've seen over the years who just started and who grew a knowledge of wildlife and nature because they're going out there looking for these animals, and then they grew a passion for and love for animals as well. So for me personally, it's of the utmost importance before you go into any research area to actually research and understand the animals in the area. If you go, if you, for example, um, someone like you who's from England. Mm-hmm comes to Australia unaware of how of sounds like koalas and possums make. You go into an area where there's yowie sightings you want to investigate it. You hear koalas or possums, and then you think it's a yowie because mm-hmm. you haven't heard sounds before. That's happened to me when I was first in Queensland. I've never heard of a brown cuckoo dove before,
0: yeah.
1: and they make a really weird whooping sound, which sometimes people describe. Yeah, I used to do, and I send that into Gary Open, and Gary's like, "That's a brown cuckoo dove." So, oh, he's great know, with that identification of animal sounds. He's, he's awesome. He's he's absolutely, and and so that helped me a lot. And so that's what that just proves, and Gary proves why people should be uh, investigating that area before that. They... Absolutely. I mean, you can't go in with confirmation bias.
0: I even had, and I struggle with this a lot in sort of that bigfoot genre. Um, especially here in the UK, where, you know, there are sightings, there are stories and histories, but it's, you know, it's a very hard sell, because essentially, it's a much smaller area. And, you know, some people could really argue that popularity of it has arisen with the popularity of the the subject in the last sort of 10, 15 years. And um, I've got people posting videos like oh that was uh, like a, a British Bigfoot making a sound here and I'm like that's an owl and then the person replied yes but they mimic owls sometimes yeah but that's um, yeah but how do you know that's one mimicking an owl <laughs> and not just an owl which exists in the British countryside and you know it goes on because if we go with this hopeful I mean in science you know confirmation bias is a very well-known thing and not to say that scientists don't employ confirmation bias it happens all the time But we can't do it because we're already fringe and we're already credulous, you know, so we've got to be hardest on ourselves because we're going to send it to those guys if we do get some evidence and they're going to rip it to shreds. We've got to be, you know, um, we've got to have done all of that, all of that searching and all of that, um, Mm -hmm. what's the word, Uh, sifting through the the weaknesses of our evidence before we present it to anybody because that's just... That's just the, the scene with cryptid animals, you know. And it's not the same with things like Yaoi and Orion Pendick and Nessie as it is with I found a new species of newt in Sumatra. People are up for that. That's okay. You know, or I found a new, they, I think they found a new species of whale in Baca, California and in, in the Gulf of California recently. They found a pod of them. And these are whales. They're huge. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they've always been there. And I guess people saw them and just never you know, with water sightings, it's difficult. Nobody ever said, Oh, what kind of whale is that? Okay. Right? So we've got that option. There's definitely space for it, but how do we go forward? And somebody like yourself being in the life science sciences,
1: I think it's it's an important aspect of this. You know. It, it, the- very good points, and in in terms of the British Bigfoot, that's actually a very interesting one when it comes to science because the UK. And I've actually never been. I've first state that I've never been in the UK. I was supposed to go, actually go to university in England. Oh um, wow. But you know, the, the, I think it was. I think it, what the university I was going to study and do wildlife conservation in was uh, involved with a project to rehabilitate European brown bears. and were the southwest. <coughs> And they're rather large animals. Mm -hmm. You know, they're large predatory animals. I think at the moment, UK's largest existing animal is the uh, predatory animal is the fox, I think, or badger. Fox or badger. Probably a.
0: I think the badger is probably bigger overall, but uh, the fox is a taller animal. Yeah, it would be the fox. It's probably the fox.
1: And so they're talking about bringing them back in obviously the biodiversity over the years because yeah. in itself has had a lot of deforestation and a lot of ancient mm. forest um you know the countryside of uk is not much forest anymore it's literally open grassland so uh when it comes down to that i can understand i can completely understand the skepticism about about a uk bigfoot. nonetheless there are still sightings so i think that mm. it's kind of naive to suggest that bigfoot can't exist in the uk personally do i believe that the bigfoot exists in the uk i'm yet to to see that only because of the the, the deforestation rate mm. obviously same thing that i'll apply it to to here in australia as well um are you familiar with a place called Kilcoy or mount Kilcoy? i've heard of it yeah, yeah. Kilcoy is a Yowie. is considered the Yowie capital of Australia. That's where the Yowie okay. statue. I've been there before. Uh, there's still there were still sightings up to that point, particularly Mount Kilcoy. Oh,
0: Mount Kilkoy, I know the big wooden statue.
1: Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Couple times, Mount Kilcoy. It takes about two minutes' drive to get to the top. There's no signs. There's no signs of wildlife unless of birds. There's a lack of bush. Well, there's a bit of bush, but there's a lack of it. There's I couldn't find any signs of um, water sources around there or anything. So for me as well, from a wildlife perspective, I always look at the environmental evidence. So when it comes down to the UK, UK yeah. that, but also I can't say unless I'm in the UK, I can't actually say it until I goes to the UK, oh, there's a possibility because, quite frankly, we're talking about rather large species as well, you know, um, descriptions based on large six-foot, seven-foot-tall
0: Yeah, I mean,
1: it's it really is.
0: And uh, sorry to interject. I just, um, you know, I've been studying it for a few years and I, I I definitely know a lot of witnesses. Uh, Let's say, let's say there's probably 10 witnesses that I know personally that I wholeheartedly believe that they saw what they saw or that they believe they saw what they saw that much. But the cell is very difficult. The landscape, actually, there was this big assessment, um, uh, uh, a government-based assessment of the land, and it was something like six point eight percent of the entire land mass is urban sprawl, including motorways and rural settlements of the entire country. So that was important. That was quite reassuring. It was like, wow, you only get this sort of concrete jungle feeling from the estimates, but actually it's really underpopulated. And in Scotland, it was something crazy, like only 1.9% of their land mass was, was urban. And uh, including again, rural sediments and roads. And I thought, well, that's, that's something extraordinary. I try to argue in my head that if there was such a thing here, it would always have been adapted to our environment, not like the stipulations of North America, for example. Yeah. But, you know, as I go along, and it's not my place to believe or not believe. I believe a whole bunch of the witnesses. I believe there's space, there's food sources, there's spaces to hide mines and caves and all kinds of things. But I'm not entirely sure if it's not some sort of, yeah. uh, what's the word? Um, you know that that, that that pinhole camera effect that you get? Where basically, um, you know, you, you get that pinhole camera you make making in college or school and you put the magnetic paper and you, you capture Photo that was the yep. original way that they did it, and some people have argued for things like ghosts that the building becomes this pinhole camera that replays the conditions and replays that you know ghostly walking figure. Um, and I wonder if the memory or the folkloric, I don't know, nostalgia of such creatures as the woodwows and the wild man, like we're having with fairies here at the moment, which has exploded in popularity again, especially in places like Highland. If this is not replaying because of pop culture in our minds, if the pop culture wasn't there, would it be happening?
1: That's what I'm questioning right now. That's a very, 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 very good point. Um, because it's quite possible, you know, especially, especially with the expansion of uh, a lot of TV shows. I don't know if you guys get as much as what we do with the cryptid shows. I think we you do. guys, yeah. yeah, So that's all it will take. <laughs> that's all it will take. You know, my aunt and uncle, uh, they've been hugely big fans. Before I got involved, they were big fans of Finding Bigfoot. Yeah. You know, it's not hard to come across people who know about that show and know about that. So when you talk about sort of the nostalgia of, of this, these subjects, Believe, all it will take is someone to watch that and find it. Oh wow, that's remarkable! I had no clue about that. And then all of a sudden, in their mind, they wow, this is you know they've got to be real now, and because people want to be real, want, yeah. want to be real, and that's much the case here. That's much the case oh, with the uh, Yowie. Yep, yep, exactly. Okay. And I think uh, you know, but the Yowie, the Yowie yet again, the Yowie, uh community and this the, the stories have been going on. For hundreds of years, you know, mm-hmm. we're talking as soon as um, pretty much settlement. There's been stories, uh, you know. So the Yowie in itself is is the Yowie tales can can be quite different than than that yeah. of the Tasquatch. And uh, actually, interesting enough, um, just going to get onto another topic because this is be actually an interesting one. Uh, they' if you're familiar with the story with the with the belief that the Yowie is more more aggressive than other yes yeah i've I've heard that yeah, so that's actually interesting because there's a place called Piliger scrub, which you may be familiar with I know what that is yeah so that's five and a half hours north of here and people who aren't involved with Yowie research tell me not to go there and the Piliger scrub people know not to go there i mean i be, I mean, from what I've heard, I know people who've camped there, and it is a, Apparently, it's a generally petrifying, according to these people, and I'm not even exaggerating. It might be exaggerated from them, but I'm not. From what I've heard, it might be very, you know, they seem to be quite terrified of it, just from going along the the highway there and mm. whatnot. But it all stemmed from an eighties. Uh, radio story on ABC radio and uh, here in Australia. And then Slim Dusty, who's one of Australia's most legendary country singers and Rob Bush brothers, he, he, he wrote a song called there's something in the pillager, which later on, there was a movie called there's something in the pillager. The pillager scrub created this legend. So basically the stories there seem to be quite aggressive And we're not just talking about the truck driver who in the 80s claimed that uh, he was dragged from his truck one night Uh by a where he saw human legs up on a tree and he was crying on on radio, which is a very interesting – I don't know how real it is, uh, that story. It just – it seems so – I don't even know what to think of that. He saw
0: human legs up in the tree, like like decapitated human legs stuck up in a tree, or
1: a human like legs dangling down from a tree. Um, I don't I don't remember if he clarified that. I haven't heard that yeah. um that story in some time. But you can actually probably see. It. I think the, the this thing is still on YouTube. I'll You'll be able to, to that. that. Yeah, have to look for that. It it gives you goosebumps when you listen to it, mm. but um, I don't know how real or accurate it is but this whole area seems to be quite aggressive and the thing is what interests me is that the pilliger scrub is actually known for some clashes between coal miners and locals so Mm. because there's mining going on there and there's such a um uh, deforestation going on there and environmental disaster going on there Mm. uh I've said to people that there could be a possibility of aggression towards humans there if they uh, view as their home being taken from them by people. Uh, at the same time, as I said, you know, it, this is just hypothetically saying that EOs yeah. exist. If always exist, what's their behaviour? They might be. They might turn on people if they see people destroying their homes. You know, and maybe that's why the pelican scrub get more aggressive sightings. That's it's be- interesting. Of is because of the the environmental disaster going on there. Did you, and- Jack? Did you hear about
0: those killer whales attacking boats in the straits of Gibraltar last year? Um. So apparently, there's a pod like of uh, Mediterranean killer whales that hang around the Straits of Gibraltar, and there's been quite a lot of overfishing, they think, in this area. And perhaps it's theorised that perhaps one or two of the members of the pod may have been caught in some of the nets. And what they do now, at that bit I don't know for sure, but what they do now very regularly when sort of medium-sized vessels, cruising pleasure vessels are passing by, they attack the vessel and disable the rudder. You know wow. that. And they've done it to about seven or eight different ships the last year and a half. Then they start smashing the boat at the sides. That's this footage of them doing it online. It's very unusual behavior for killer whales. But the theory is something about their environment has been destroyed or invaded. And they have identified the humans are doing it.
1: And they're they're taking revenge on them. Yes, it's it's very interesting. It's probably much, it sounds like a very similar situation. Um, instincts it's a survival instinct actually you know it's a survival trait Uh, and when it comes down to to the yowie and i've always because i'm i study evolution as well and i find that hugely fascinating and and ethology is behavior we're talking about you know uh, people i think that people skip that topic a lot they 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 always assume the behavior they're not Mm -hmm. observing. And that's going to me, become a real problem. And so when it comes down to the behaviour of uh, a yaoi, I mean, what is their behaviour? Based on the descriptions alone, I'm not looking at, oh, I felt like I was going to be killed because you don't know that. Mm. Uh, I'm not looking at that's this kind of instincts. But the bluff charges, Yeah, I mean, reals do bluff charges and only... One um, percent of those bluff charges, and in harm, serious injury, or death. So that's a territorial thing. So I believe that based on these, now I'm going to put into a little picture here. If we're talking yowies exist based on sightings alone, their behaviour would be territorial, survival, and even compassion, because in some instincts there are actually sightings where they're more curious and compassionate. And there's ones where they're more territorial and there's ones where they're more survival. So when it comes down to, let's say, Pilgrim Scrub, if they're attacking people because they feel like their home's been invaded and be, their environment's been destroyed, that's survival. And also territorial. Bluff mm-hmm. charges, territorial, where that's their, probably their feeding ground and they don't like people being there. Um and also compassion or curiosity because they're generally curious about us. If we're curious about them, they can become curious about us. Other animals also can become quite curious as well. You know, uh, well, I used to work um, with Tasmanian Devon down in Tasmania and back in 2017. And when I did that, they were very curious animals. That what they would do is because they didn't have the best eyesight, they would come up and they would sniff you to what they would do. Uh, these were rather wild. Oh, sorry. These were rather wild Tasmanian devils that are due for release, um, and basically, uh, you know, these were wild Tasmanian devils that were curious. You know, they weren't like your, your typical zoo animals. Mm. So, in itself, Tasmanian devils also being curious. I worked with koalas. They did the exact same thing as Tasmanian devils and sometimes they would actually climb you out of curiosity. And you know, so they're also another curious animal. So I think that the yaoi itself, based on descriptions of what I saw myself, they are probably very curious. So I believe thats that that's the three that is the three main traits that we've seen in sightings, mm-hmm. you know territorial survival, curiosity. And the curiosity one is actually harder to come by, but uh, territorial survival uh, are more common. Um, Particularly territorial, the bluff charges seem to be a very common Mm. thing in Australia and in America. Um, But, yeah, when it comes to the behaviour, I think those are the aspects we kind of look at. It's uh, interesting.
0: Yeah, and, you know, it's largely encouraging as well if you think of it that we know the bluff charges exist because people largely survive them. So, and the ones they don't survive, we don't know about those people anyway. You know, so yeah. <laughs> that's the the downside. And I, I don't like, don't really know what that that um, percentage would be. Um, but it's it shows intelligence. You know, but I think the mistake we make sometimes with animals, people that is, one is is thinking that they're without personality. All animals, individual animals have individual personalities. I've seen it, you see it in your cats and dogs. If you've owned three or four dogs or three or four cats, you'll see they've all had different personalities. Yes, there's predictable parameters, which animals behave within each species of animal, but there's a myriad of different possibilities within that. And, (coughs) sorry, one of the things I think sometimes about like Bigfoot encounters is that, that individual animal that bumps into you similarly to yourself, has to decide, evaluate that situation and decide what to do about it, just like a bear or something. You bump into a bear in the wood and the bear says, is this creature a threat to me? Is this creature food? Can I just get around? Is this creature making intimidating eye contact? What am I Mm going to do about this? How will I get out of here? Or is this lunch or whatever the creature is going to do? And I think it's the same around, like with chimps. One chimp will spend all day hugging and, and, um, you know, grooming you, the other will beat you to death with your own arms. <laughs> you know? and that's like, that's, that's animals. Similarly to people, some are very easygoing and some not so much.
1: There's, there's literally no difference between us and animals, that I tell people, because we may look different, we may, what our biology may be slightly different, but we all are the same. We have the same kind of traits behavioral traits we act the same other than creating you know technology in houses which people seem to think makes us well above other people as oh, i sorry well above other species well above animals that's not true that doesn't mean we're more superior than other animals we're the same they all as you said personalities we have we have ourselves. We all have, have personalities. We're all different, you know, and that goes for animals. If I had five dogs, I could, and they all look the same. I bet I could tell them apart based on how they act. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you know, that because they're all much different. For and another good example as well. How's a dog gonna act if they? Uh, were treated so poorly and 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 beaten when our pup and then rescued they're going to be more aggressive and more standoff in the pub that was that was um no i agree i agree really, mm, yeah really i mean up. of course there's the aspect of
0: you know the yowie could be a predator of some kind or it might just be an omnivore that responds to its dietary needs in certain situations and perhaps similarly similarly to bears very occasionally somebody could be a big protein source and on the menu in that situation, in that very circumstance, I don't personally believe they or most animals are predators of humans. Very few animals are predators of humans, you know, um, though many have the possibility to be. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes, yes. Well, <sighs> I think, I think it's pretty interesting when we talk about whether they are predatory or, or not. And, and in terms of the yaoi, um, I believe that they are simply based on, on locations alone where I've been, uh, you know, I've been to areas where there wasn't much, even weeks of vegetation to eat, but there happens to be a large number of sightings, and yet there also happens to be a large number of species in the area. We're talking so I actually run um, my own side conservation project called the Wadikins Project that based the Wadikins National Park natural okay. involvement in the Hedon State Forest and only State Forest. Through that, I've documented several species. We're talking macropods like the swamp wallaby, brush-tailed rock wallaby, and eastern grey kangaroos. They're, both, they're all heavily as everywhere in Australia, mostly eastern grey kangaroos, I should say, in this coast. Um They've also been sighted up in the Waddington National Park where there's a large number of sightings. Uh, so is the lace monitor lizard or the goanna, uh, the common herring Wombat, the koala, and all that there, uh, ring possums, brush tail possums, um, you name it, there's so many species there, echidna as well. I've seen the up there. I've documented several species. And I do wildlife mm-hmm. research as well. There's um, in this area alone, there's there's the um, the white ibis and the uh, straw necked ibis, as well. Oh, I really like those, you know. Yeah, so I, the really other straw necked ibis from backyard, only wow. about a two minute drive from here. So, um, you know, the, there are several species in this area, and the species are actually growing in this area, uh, wow. and I only from the foothills and the mountains. Um, but basically, As far as food source goes, if they're a predatory animal, a carnivorous animal, they have an all-you-can-eat buffet in the Waddington National Park. And the Waddington National Park, from my own personal experience, from the sightings I've received, from uh, even looking online, it seems to have equal most, or if not the most, amount of sightings in Australia, not including Blue Mountains because the Blue Mountains got so many national parks and forests towards it so blue mountains would easily win but um you know there's such a large such a large national park in such a large area that you know um anything could live it there and and survive based on the food source and we wouldn't
0: i I, uh, i look forward to checking it out i've been um uh, I did notice your project online as well. You know, I think it's it's really great work that you're doing uh, with the conservation as well as everything else. I did write an article recently that was um, it was published, and um, it was the basic concept of it is you know will we, will we will some of the world's undiscovered species become extinct before you have a chance to protect them, you know, and um, I think, in some areas at least, uh that that's a possibility, you know, countries like, like your own, which are doing much better and, and mine and some others, are, you know, well on the way, but there's so many places around the world, you know, and many in Asia as well, especially where it just, these things will just become extinct and nobody will care, you know, and that, that'll be, you know, that'll be that. And that, but it's interesting, I think, to at least try to document these things and do work to conserve them at the same time, in the meantime, and um, I, you know, I live in the hope that the age of adventure, uh, it, it never ended. You know, we just lost interest and people are finding interest again. And if we can sell that, that, um, that, uh, that joy of exploration and discovery again, uh, even if it's rediscovering things we haven't really paid attention to for, for some time, people will get on board and they'll look after them. It'll become profitable to people to keep them there. To see, and uh, and to uh, for future generations, and that's that's a way forward. Just before we go, um, Jack, I wondered if you could talk about the mystery marsupials of Australia, like the Thylacine, and the marsupial uh-huh. line. Is there is there a possibility of a mainland um,
1: Thylacine? Um. Yes, there there, there is. Um, but I've been to Tasmania and I've been to areas where there's been also a hotbed findings with thylacine, thylacine including Barrington Tops Mm -hmm. and also also New South Wales. Um, the thylacine on mainland, it's where it gets a little bit tricky because I guarantee you. That on the mainland, if there was a thylacine, uh, it become easier to to actually find one and bring in a body, but that has yet to happen. Mm-hmm. So, story goes in 1930s, sometime I'd like to say around 35, 36, when Benjamin died, the last living Tasmanian mm-hmm. the tiger. There was a group of conservationists. Apparently, um, there was a journal reported a group of conservationists had actually. Uh, back in the early, you should say, in the early nineteen thirty had gotten several male and female Tasmanian tigers. Uh, on a bolt. They went on a boat with them. It was through the Bass Straits, so the Bass Strait's between Tasmania and the Melbourne, so like Victoria as well. They went there and they had released them into Gippsland in Victoria, and so that's where the story goes for so mainland uh, Tasmania. Okay, okay, this makes when, more sense now. Yeah. So when I was, so when I was in uh, Tasmania, at first I thought, oh, maybe the Tasmanian tiger survived on the mainland and not Tasmania. But in Tasmania, it's becoming it's become quite possible that the the Tasmanian tiger, the thylacine, could be thriving in Tasmania. It's so dense there. Wow. Yeah, I, I think I've been to any. I've been along the east coast from. Sun from up to Sunshine Coast in Queensland all the way down to Tasmania. And I've done invest I've done expeditions in Jimna, Queensland, for Yowies and Blue Mountains, um, Tasmania, and it became quite possible. The idea of the Tasmanian Tiger, the idea of the thylacine became more possible in Tasmania than anywhere else. There are sightings in Adelaide and the sightings in, in all sorts of in all you know, different parts of the country, Um, but I think the possibility uh, exists primarily with Tasmania, Uh, but mainland thylacine is, is a possibility itself. But if you look at the sightings, I think that there's a lot, much, more than double the amount of sightings that take place in Tasmania. So that's but, an
0: interesting thing. Really, we've got to go back to the source of where they were and stop looking for these mystery sightings further afield. Is it inaccessible, most of Tasmania then? Uh, I mean, to vehicles and whatnot. Is it just so heavily forested that any internal expedition you are going to do is going to be
1: on foot with, you know? It is. It, it, it is very inaccessible, a lot of the places there. If you want to do a serious expedition of a thylacine, so in the soil scenes there. You really kinda have to spend four days on trek Yeah. In in very dense forests. Uh, it's probably probably through thick snow. I mean Tasmanian's forests the Tasmanians weather is very I was there during the winter and wow. Tasmania snows a lot and there has been no snow during summer. I believe. Is it that Antarctic stream that comes up there? Yeah. What is that yeah. called? Um, I'll, I'll, I'll forget now. Yeah. yeah, I'll find it. And so Tasmania itself has such weird climate. It hmm. has, can be, in a way, aggressive climate and also very thick terrain. So it is isn't an easy area to be doing investigations in and do expeditions in, but you do it properly you need to spend four days there, uh, trekking through Tasmania, and and using trail cameras if you can, and other sources yeah. as well, documentation, around the area of where you where you're doing that from. So you know, um, yeah, <coughs> me. should be on the bucket list for. Any, oh
0: yeah, oh I mean any- for me it's,
1: as, um.
0: Now, when I come to visit you guys, I intend to stay at least a sort of a, a week to two weeks and uh, gonna have to check out a few things, you know. Um, yeah. because yeah, if you come halfway around the world to a land full of cryptid tales, you can't just uh
1: <laughs> talk yeah.
0: at a conference for a few days and bugger off home, you know. You're gonna have to have a bit of a snoop about, uh, so I have to pick, pick your brains for some advice on that. Jack, thank you uh, so much for coming on today, we really appreciate it. Um, regarding the Australian Cryptozoology Conference and you and the work that you do, where can people find you? Where can they get involved and get tickets if they're going to come along, if they're, they're local or flying in? Tell us tell us all about it.
1: So the Australian Cryptozoology Conference, you can find us on, on Facebook, just type in Australian Cryptozoology Conference, the same for uh, Twitter and also on Instagram as well, uh, mostly active on, on Facebook. Tickets are going to become available from the first Monday of October. So I think that's the 3rd of, October, 3rd of October. So we're going to have tickets available then. Of course, you've got yourself, we've got Rex Gilroy, Murray Byfield, Gary Albert we'll all be talking. We're going to announce some more as well. Actually, we're going to be announcing some more today. So awesome. Yeah, another one today. So there is a lot on, um, on offer. We've got a weekend pass. We've got, we've got two days, and we've got a weekend pass, and we've got, a one-day pass as well. So if you want to stop by for one day, we've got one-day pass available. If you want to stop, we're going to do the whole weekend, we've got a weekend pass available. Basically, it's going to be a great opportunity to actually meet the speakers, talk to them, pick their brains about, about all these topics, engage with members of the community, uh, and also um, grab some books and other merchandise as well. And we're going to have raffles. We're going to have... Actually, we're going to have an eyewitness tell-all. So oh. if you are not want to come along um, basically it's a perfect opportunity to share your encounter uh, publicly with the room with a bunch of people who who are, so, are very open-minded to to the to these ideas so you know come along and and enjoy the day and so enjoy the weekend and you know uh, meet these speakers grab some books, You'll be able to grab some more knowledge from them when they when they talk. Uh, we're going to have some very interesting, very interesting topics up up there uh, at the conference. You know, so yeah, just come come by and 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 have have fun, and enjoy the, enjoy this great weekend, April twenty two and twenty three next next year at the Central Leagues Club in Charlestown, New South Wales. Wow. Well,
0: look, I'm I'm really, really looking forward to it. And um, obviously, you know, Jack ex- definitely expects you to come by if you're in New South Wales anywhere. You've got no excuse not to attend. And anybody <laughs> else who wants to fly in will be more than welcome. Jack Tessia, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your knowledge and for all the great work you do in conservation. It's been great to talk to you.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you, my friend. Bye-bye.
1: Bye.